hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. So how's your retirement plan coming along? If you're like the vast majority of Americans, you're probably saying, oh shit, let's talk about that. (laughs) Right? You wish you could turn back time on your retirement plan? Most of us do. You may not have to, though. Being able to retire early takes some effort and a plan. And this week, we talk with Todd Treseder of FinancialMentor.com about how just about anyone can come, come up with and implement a plan to retire and even retire early. All right, are you ready? Let's do this. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. Hey, let's see if this card goes through for that $8,000 drink. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wants to be a part of the in-crowd. Everybody wants to to look good. My my decision was, I'm not a victim. I'm not going to stay and work someplace where this is a problem. Normally, we don't drink on queer money, but because we're talking about a subject that David is rather vanilla on... Grab a glass of wine, because you're listening to Queer Money with the Debt-Free Guys. This is the only show helping our community do more and be more by talking about money from the queer perspective. All right, so we think we have another good queer money for our audience today. Uh, We've got Todd Treseder of The Financial Mentor. He's a friend of ours from our FinCon community, which we've talked about several times in the past. But... um, Todd has uh, some background and education and opinions on limiting beliefs and um, as well as retirement planning. And uh, those are two concerns that seem to bubble up a lot with our community. Uh, so we're excited to have Todd. Welcome, Todd. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Absolutely. Definitely. Do you mind sharing with, um, you have a pretty interest, interesting background. Do you mind sharing with our audience uh, your background and where you come from? Yeah, so I cut my teeth. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a long lifetime entrepreneur, right? So even as a kid, I was an entrepreneur and through college, I was an entrepreneur. Um, and then I cut my teeth on the finance side of the business um, pretty much straight out of college. I mean, I had a short six month stint at Hewlett Packard and got fired. We can talk about that <laughs> um, if you guys want, you know, and then, and then I went on and helped found a hedge fund. Uh, it was very successful. Um, and that's how I built my financial independence and quote unquote retired at age 35. Um, and then, you know, I was, I was really adrift, you know, there's a lot more models now about what you do when you achieve early financial independence than back when I did it, when I did, it was pretty much unheard of. Mm-hmm. And so, cause again, I'm, I'm much older now, so I'm, I'm about to celebrate my 56th birthday in two days. Wow, hey. congratulations. <laughs> yeah, so recording this in May. Um, so obviously I did this a long time ago and I've been living off my assets for a long time. Um, so I had a lot of people ask me like, how'd you do it back then? Um, and I, I just wasn't comfortable talking about it because my viewpoints as you guys are gonna find out is quite are quite different from mainstream personal finance advice. Uh, but they work, and they're all founded by math. You know, they're all founded on uh, research and proven out through mathematics. It's, uh, you know, I'm not a whack case that just likes to throw around crazy ideas. Um, you know, all this stuff is proven. It works. It worked in my life. It works in my coaching clients' lives. And so my my wife took me to task one time. We'd been at a party, and again, people were asking me finance questions, and you know, I I just do blow off answers and go grab another drink somewhere and go get a, grab a different conversation. I was always <laughs> avoiding it. And she's like, you know, you know this stuff cold. You you spent a lifetime figuring this out. Why do you do that? Why do you blow people off? Why do you just avoid the conversations? It's like, well, you know, they're not even asking the right questions. They don't even have like the basics right, you know. And there's so many assumptions and implications behind the way they phrase a question that it's like, where do you even tackle it? It's not cocktail party conversation, right? Right. And I mean, there's just a depth to it. And, and so she's wanting you do something with it then, you know, like go create something with it. And I've been floundering around. I'd had a couple failed businesses by then. And, um, you know, we'd done a lot of travel by then. And so I, w- I was ready for something. And so that's when I started financial mentor. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that you uh, were fired. Um, yeah, I'm sure that is an interesting story. But what I find surprising is that in a relatively short period of time, 
I'm assuming you probably graduated from college in your early 20s, and then within maybe 12, 15 years, you were retired. Yes. And I think that today... Yeah, in between, I got fired. Right, right. <laughs> so the, to, today, many people think that this, uh, this uh, being able to achieve retirement is something that they have to plan for, for and work for for 30, 40, 50 years, and... If you put forth the right effort and you do it with the right motivation, it sounds like you can do it in a relatively short period of time, which I think was what most people would love to be able to do. They would love to be able to retire in a shorter period of time and enjoy what you've been able to do, and that is travel and really do what it is that you like to do or what you enjoy doing. Yeah. So if you really look at – all right, so just look at the facts around you. Um you know, it, the traditional model as it's designed sets you up for old age financial independence, right? It's designed to give you financial security in old age. Right. So, I mean, retirement planning, you know, retirement is really just a euphemism for old age financial independence. <laughs> so really all this stuff is about planning for financial independence, whether it's old age or whether it's young age or whatever. It's the same math. It's the same principles. Everything's ruled by the expectancy, you know, expectancy equation and it's ruled by the future value equation. So that's the undeniable math that rules retirement planning or wealth planning or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, and those rules apply and the math applies equally whether you want to plan for it at 35 or whatever. The differences is in how you structure your plan, what assets you choose or whatever. And again, people can look around and they can see the truth of that because they, they hear of people that become financially independent in their 20s, right? Those 20-something millionaires. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So uh, imagine you guys are sitting down talking to somebody who got who achieved financial independence by age 25, right? And you said, hey, Joe, how'd you do it, right? How'd you get financially independent? He says, well, I went out and got my starter position at the usual corporation, and I put away my max 401k in a conventional asset allocation in mutual funds, and I scrimped and saved, and I did it by age 25, right? <laughs> I mean, you're laughing, right? Because it's absurd, <laughs> right? Of course that's not going to work, right? You know that the way he did it was he he was founded a business or was an early pioneer, early partner in one in a business startup and they had a liquidity event and suddenly he was rich at a young age, right? That's right. how it's done. You know, and if you hear of a guy that does it by maybe late 30s, early 40s and he's not, you know, he doesn't have to be really sharp, but you notice he's kind of like salt of the earth kind of guy and he tells you how he did it in real estate, right? There's there's all these different ways to do it. Um, there's different asset classes and there's different people. And you've got to connect the skills, resources, and abilities along with your goals. So you take your skills, resources, and abilities that you bring to the equation. You take your goals in terms of timeline and total dollar value that you want to achieve. And then you have to match it to the asset classes being paper assets, right? Stocks, bonds, mutual funds that your broker can sell you. Um, business entrepreneurship and real estate. Now, each one of those asset classes have different characteristics. Each individual has different characteristics. Each goal implies different objectives. You have to take these puzzle pieces, you have to weave them together, and you come up with a plan that will work uniquely for you. And so, when you started this question, you said, hey, you know, retire, you know, it's everybody thinks it's gonna take 30, 40 years of scrimping and saving. Yeah, that's the traditional plan, Right. right? But there's other ways to do it. There's I, ha, I teach an advanced planning framework. Um, I teach how you can do it within the, the traditional plan, which you guys are familiar. There's a variety of what we call in our business, we call them fire bloggers, right? Financial independence retire early, mm -hmm. right? And those guys typically fall in the camp of extreme frugality, right? right? And by extreme frugality, what you do is you lower the amount of income required and therefore the traditional assets can achieve the returns needed in a reasonable, reasonably short period of time. If you don't want to go extreme frugality, if you want to lead what we'll call a more standard life or conventional life of consumption, then you have to start looking at, but you still want to do it quickly, you have to look at non-conventional assets. So business entrepreneurship, business entrepreneurship and real estate. Right. Yeah. This, does that it, make sense? No, it does. It, it, it makes complete sense that the shortest distance between any two points is a straight line. But that straight line is going to look different depending on what, what skills you have or what, like you said, what asset classes you want to use. 
Close. Yeah, close. The way I visualize it is more like imagining um, like a three-dimensional sphere that's made up of all these different components. And in order to get it right, you have to get all the components to match and, and mesh together to come up with that sphere again. And so the way I like to say it is there's not one right way to build financial independence. This is one of the things that separates my teachings from most people. Because most people, as you guys know, are kind of absolutist, right? right? Like the fire community, it's like they have the one and only answer, <laughs> right? And you got to do it their way. And you talk, to some, you talk to some real estate guru and he says, well, no, this is the one and only answer. This is the best answer. You got to do it my way. Right. Their religion. Um, <laughs> it's their financial religion, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's usually the way they did it, right? The way they did it is the right way, right? right. Sounds kind of parental. Right. Um, and so what's unique about my teachings is that I don't come from that standpoint. I There's a lot of ways to skin the cat. There's a lot of ways to achieve financial independence. The key is to find the one right way that will work for you. Right. So I think the the challenge I would think that many in our community would have with that is you have to really understand yourself and what and what you're good at and also have the courage to be able to um, maybe step outside the norm maybe the nine to five job isn't your solution it depends on your goals yeah um, so that's possibly true it's possibly not true it really it depends on your goals depends on what you bring to the equation um, for some people it's uncomfortable for some people they actually want to do that I mean we're a little bit vague here because we'd have to dig a little deeper with a specific example to, to nail it down. Right. Yeah, so you told me that the retirement planning is about amassing asset is not about, let's see here, retirement planning is about amassing assets when it's really about amassing sources of cash flow. What does that mean? Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so there's different retirement planning models, right? And the conventional model is that you you know, there's really two phases to retirement planning or wealth planning, uh, as we talked about earlier. Um, you the the asset accumulation phase and the asset decumulation phase, right? And so the asset accumulation phase is about building up a this huge nest egg. That's how most people perceive the process. And then once you quit and you're eating bonbons and <laughs> sleeping in a hammock and leading the pro leisure circuit. Um, then you start decumulating those assets and supposedly enjoying your life. Um, I don't really advocate that. Um, there's a lot of problems with it we can go into if you want. Um, there's another model that I teach, which is a cash flow based model. Ultimately, what you spend is cash flow. When you live off an asset based model, it creates a lot of problems, um, specifically scarcity mindset. Um, and you, everybody's seen it, right? The multimillionaire that, like, you can't pry the cobwebs off his wallet. <laughs> and, he, you know, he, he's 80 years old. He couldn't possibly spend all his money in his lifetime. But he's so deeply programmed to watch that nest egg and, and prepare that nest egg and not spend from capital and all those things. Even though it makes no mass sense, the guy can't spend a dime and he dies leaving other, other people rich to enjoy it. Right. Uh, it's a tragic story. I've seen it in uh, elders in my own family. Yeah. Um, so anyway, cash flow is very different. Cash flow regenerates itself. So for example, when I say cash flow, I'm talking about like dividends from stocks or, um, passive income from real estate, right? Or even income from your business, you know, like for example, you guys, you know, you build websites, you've got advertising and affiliate income, whatever else you have coming in off it. Let's say you get that to a level and it's producing relatively passive income. Yeah, you got to run the business, but you don't have to report in every day and you can kind of manage your schedule, right? Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so that when that cash flow exceeds expenses, you're financially independent in perpetuity, particularly if there's a little bit of surplus that you can reinvest back into capital. And so that's a much more sound definition of financial independence that doesn't require all the arcane assumptions of traditional financial planning. And so that's the difference between asset-based versus cash flow-based. In one, in one context, you're saying, hey, how many millions of dollars do I need to support my spending of X thousands per month? And that mm -hmm. goes into all kinds of complex actuarial equations. You know, you've got to put in all kinds of crazy assumptions and all kinds of stuff that probably won't work in the future. It has almost a zero probability of being accurate in the future. Whereas when you go to a cash flow based model, you can eliminate all those assumptions and all that craziness, all the sequence of returns risk and all the other things going on because you simply have to live within the cash flow of your investment empire. That's very interesting. It, it reminds me a little bit of um, 
of uh, Robert Kiyosaki's comments uh, yeah, about what his definition of wealth of of that that your um, your truly your wealth is how many months of income that your assets are able to produce for you and your assets being things including things like real estate or your business or or your your paper tr- assets yeah your two paper a- paper assets yeah it's completely congruent with that yeah. you know it's you know so the extreme of that would obviously be when your cash flow exceeds your expenses then the number of months is infinite and therefore you're infinitely wealthy yes. I think it would be um, could you talk about what why the conventional method is dangerous I think most of um, we've heard the statistic several times that 40% of the LGBT community are in retail and service jobs um, they don't tend we don't tend to um, uh, gravitate or strive for mid-manager or higher level positions uh, we don't seem to take a lot of risks for whatever reasons um, so can you explain what's dangerous about the conventional method that I think maybe many in our community might be might gravitate towards yeah the problem with the conventional method is as I was saying earlier it requires assumptions so let me kind of go through them okay because you, you know the joke right when you assume you make an ass out of you and me <laughs> right, right. Right. And so let's go through the assumptions required in the conventional planning model so people can see just how insane it is. Right. So the first one is you have to decide when you're going to die. Um, <laughs> now, the solution. Yeah, it's laughable. Right. I right. mean, just on the surface of it. But, you know, and you usually have to decide when you and your partner are going to die. Right? right. Because if there's financial planning involved between the two of you, um, it can affect both of you in, in, you know, in terms of your financial independence planning. So anyway, um, that can't be done. I mean, it's impossible, right? So the way it's usually done in practice is they'll do some sort of statistical analysis of it. So they'll say like, you know, if they're going to be really involved in like personally do it, it'll it'll be like looking at your family history, saying you don't have really have any health problems. And so you're likely to live kind of commensurate with other family members, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with that is you're no more likely to die on any given statistical date than you are to die tomorrow or you know, 10 years after that date, right. right? It's a probabilistic analysis that's only true for insurance companies and the IRS. It does, <laughs> there is no probabilistic distribution, probability distribution for a sample size of one. Right. Right, which right. is the only sample size that matters to you in your lifetime. Exactly, I just, I'm just gonna maybe give a little bit of an explanation here to what you just said. For insurance companies and the IRS, they're able to spread that the risk of making a mistake over many, many people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, whereas your risk of mistake is one. You, can, you can't spread the, your risk of making a mistake financially to other people. It's all on you. Yeah, absolutely. And so what ends up happening is you have to plan for a very, very long life, right? Because the alternative is not acceptable. It would mean running out of money before you run out of life. Right. Right. And so that that's one example of a, a flawed conventional planning assumption is they'll take like your statistical life expectancy as part of the equation, which you can't do. Another one, um, again, you got to look at um, there's two key ratios when you're building wealth. Uh, the first one is your savings rate as a percent of your income. And the second one is your return on investment minus inflation. And so those two key ratios will determine your financial outcome in life if you're following just a conventional model, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what we're talking about here. And so everything else in the retirement planning equation, there's all kinds of other things you can do, like, you know, spousal life expectancy and tax rates and this, that, and the other thing. And when you really crunch the numbers enough, and I've been doing this for a while, um, you'll see that those are essentially rounding errors to the equation. They are not the key factors that determine your outcome. Again, the key factors that determine your outcome are just those two key ratios. and so, and they, they stack up in a lifespan. In other words, I teach a principle called the life cycle of wealth, where um, in the early period of your compound wealth equation, the most important key ratio is your savings rate as a percent of your income. And then later on in life, as your assets begin to amass, your savings rate as a percent of income becomes not that important and is taken over by your return on investment minus inflation. Right. And so, and so these two key ratios have key points in your life cycle of building wealth. So the re- where I brought that in is because another key assumption in retirement planning, conventional retirement planning, is that is your return on investment minus inflation. You're supposed to estimate your return on investment looking 30, 40 years into the future 
Um, minus inflation, right? You're also supposed to estimate inflation 30, 40 years in the future. Now, let's let's really look at how absurd this is, um, right? PhDs who spent their entire career studying inflation can't get it right one year into the future, <laughs> right? And you're and you're expected to predict 30, 40 years in the future. There are so many variables that affect what inflation is. There are so many cycles that inflation goes through that the odds of you getting it right are essentially zero. If you got it right, it was a random luck stab, like, you know, throwing a dart at the, at the you know, at the dartboard. I mean, it's right. just, it would be pure luck. Right. And then your return on investment equation, you know, you can get a reasonable estimate in the seven to 15 year time horizon. You can get a statistically valid estimate for return on investment for a passive index asset allocation portfolio for kind of seven to 15 year time horizon because it's inversely correlated to your, uh, and I know I'm throwing around big words. In other words, it goes the opposite way of your, um, of your uh, the investment valuation and interest rates at the beginning of your holding period for your portfolio. So that number actually can be known for about seven to 15 years. It cannot be known for less than seven years. It's randomly distributed and it cannot, it cannot be predicted out past 20 years, 30 years, um, you'll get variability in between. It starts reverting the mean once you hit about 30 years and it starts hitting those long-term averages. But then there's a whole another discussion I can go into about what a 30-year holding period means in a real lifetime and the fact that almost nobody achieves it. Yeah. Um, but I'll leave that for another monologue. <laughs> no, I, it's fine. I, I'm glad you brought this up because I think a lot, a lot of people plan this way but it reminds me of the time period right around the crash of the market in 2008. Individuals who had followed these models and they were re they were psyched and they were ready because they were going to retire in 2009 or 2010, and then they saw their portfolios drop by 40 percent, and well, completely changed their outlook in life. Oh yeah, well you guys are, that that's you guys are younger than me. Let's go back to 2000, right? And the, there's people who retired in the lead up to the 2000 top, you know, 98 to 2000 using conventional financial planning assumptions, and they had to change their lives. I mean, you know, if they were using conventional financial planning assumptions of a, you know, conventional asset allocation portfolio with uh, the 4% rule, you know, spend 4% of assets, uh, inflation adjusted going forward, you know, their drawdowns are so large that, yeah, the market did eventually come back. But spending from a portfolio for that long of a period of time, it took something like 12 years or I don't remember the exact date. But, you know, if you spend 4% inflation adjusted, even before you adjust for the volatility in the markets, you're going to be down, you know, 50, 60% by the time you get all the adjustments right. When the market is hitting new highs, you'll be down 40, 50, 60%. Right. I mean, your life has changed. It's over. Your, your conventional planning assumptions failed you. What? Good. I was just going to say, so we've, we've thrown around a little bit of a fear factor here. Um, uh, of, well, it's, but it, well, let's be clear. This is just the math. Right. Right. You know, That's, this I is think... not a fear factor, guys. This is a dose of reality that the conventional financial planning world is not telling you. Right. This is the way it works. It's fully supported by research. This is just the mathematical reality. Right. You know, I didn't, I didn't make any of this up, right? You were talking about from the 2008 top. I was talking about from the 2000 top. We're showing what actually occurred using real numbers that real people did. Exactly. Yeah, and and I think that that's um, that's the the point behind it is that although it does sound scary, the, and using these conventional methods, um, that it has to be factored in to the decisions that we make about what the choices that we're making in life today, five years from now, twenty five years from now, especially for. John and I like to say for, for people in our community who oftentimes don't have a family, they won't have children to be supportive in their in their old, older you know, older years that they won't be looking to a family to support them. They have to rely completely on themselves. Oh yeah. Um, so I would I would way sooner strike fear into your audience now, so they can look deeper, learn more, and make smart decisions for themselves than to allow us to naively go along on stuff that is, ha you know, half truths, not fully well reasoned, and then they get 20 years down the road and it's too late to do anything about it. Right. right. I agree. I think, I think, that's, I think that's great. I, 
one of the questions that I think would come to a lot of in our community is that they struggle with debt, um, especially the younger community because they're struggling with st student loan debt. It's I think it's it sounds a little bit outside of reach maybe to get into real estate to start your own business if you're if you've got a lot of debt. How do you how do you manage uh, your strategy of retirement planning when you have that, that credit card or that student loan debt to manage? Yeah, I actually addressed that. Um, in some posts on the site, I've got one pay off mortgage earlier invest, you know, which is, you know, it's paying off debt. Granted it's mortgage debt, but, right. um, the, you know, it's, it's going to be a unique thing for each person because some people are just, including me, by the way, are biologically predisposed to despise debt and literally cannot stand having debt because mm -hmm. it's, it's the antithesis of freedom, right? That at some level, the, the, person who loaned the money owns you. Um, so it's, it's like a form of enslavement. You know, you can even hear it in my choice of words, right? right. I, I'm not a fan of debt, um, particularly consumer debt. I would, I would never do it. I would live in the street before I would incur consumer debt. Um, so um, it, it depends on the individual. It, some people are way more comfortable with debt. And they're, they're way more comfortable with floating debt. As a matter of fact, I met with somebody this last weekend who has a business model built around extraordinary movements of, you know, debt and and cash flows that I could never stomach, right? I'm a high margin guy. I like, I like having high margins in my business model and large safety valves because I've just, I've lived through a lot. I've had too many things go wrong. I, I know I need those safety valves. Mm -hmm. So anyway, get, getting to your question, um, what you cannot properly give a singular answer because a lot of it's on the predisposition of the person. Ultimately, I mean, I can give you the math answer. So let, let me say it more succinctly. To every financial question, there's both the, the math slash science answer and there's the answer that will actually work, which is based on um, personal issues, right? Because we're not computers that do everything rationally. We're human beings. We're emotional human beings, and we that. make. <laughs> What's that? I said I challenge that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's a joke. <laughs> oh, is that an internal joke between the two you guys? No, I, just, <laughs> I, I like to claim that I'm very rational. Uh, David he, likes to claim that I'm not. Very not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The other one knows, right? Yep. Yep. That's exactly. Anyway, so. Um, You've got the the science answer, which is you would put money towards whatever has the highest after tax return, right? So that's like the definitive science answer that will never do you wrong. The problem with the science answer is you don't really know what will have the highest after tax return return because that requires a forecast of the future, right? Therefore, it's somewhat impractical because you don't know if like investments are going to have a higher return than paying off your debt. You don't know if you would invest money in some investments that went to zero and you're going to sit here kicking yourself like, gosh, if I'd only put that 10,000 towards paying off debt, I'd be way happier. Um, flip side, you could pay off debt. Like I have uh, a guest post over at J Money's site and I, I talk about it on my site where, you know, I paid off a condo in a few years and was completely out of debt because again, I, I loathe debt, right? And so um, paid off the debt and then my assets promptly doubled the next year. And then they went on to grow from there. And so that personal decision to pay off the debt probably cost me millions. Um, you know, like big tear in the eye, Todd, he paid off his house and <laughs> he, he left millions on the table, right? You know, I don't expect anybody to cry for me. Um, but I'm just sharing that it's, you know, this stuff's subtle. You know, it's not, there's not a distinct answer. There's a math answer, but you have to look at it and decide what's the higher priority for you. What are you comfortable with? Maybe you are not comfortable investing until you've paid off that last bit of debt. Does it, does that make sense, guys? Yeah, it, it does. does. It totally yeah. does. I, I think that still um, one of the questions that I think a lot of uh, people in our community are going to have is, where do I start? If um, Let's just maybe take the scenario of I'm a 40-year-old man who has been working in retail or in the service industry, maybe I have a job as a, uh, as a waiter or um, a bartender and I've, I'm 40 years old and I haven't really put anything away for, uh, for retirement and I don't have a lot of income right now. What would you suggest as a place to start? Well, first of all, the starting point is always a plan. 
right? Because the plan sets the context for all your decisions. If you don't have a game plan based on proven principles and you've tested out, you've engineered behind it, you know the math will work, um, then you have no basis for the decisions. You're basically flying by the seat of your pants. Um, so starting point is you have to create a plan and engineer that plan. Um, I have free resources on my website. You know, like I've got that ultimate retirement calculator. You guys can link to it in the show notes or whatever. Sure. Um, and I built that specifically for working with coaching clients because it allows you to model all the asset classes and do all the stuff. Um, so that's free, you know, no pitch on that. I also have a course that teaches you how to build a wealth plan. Um, so that is a pitch. Um, but anyway, so you start with a plan, right? And then from there, you start taking action on the plan. Now, in the example you gave, uh, a 40-year-old with no history of savings and um, not a high income is not a candidate for the traditional plan, right? right? Because we already pointed out it takes pretty much a lifetime of savings with discipline and regularity uh, to achieve it using conventional planning. And so you've pretty much ruled out the conventional plan from the scenario you created. Mm -hmm. In all likelihood, unless this person has a clear entrepreneurial path they're interested in and a kind of entrepreneurial bent, I'd probably lean towards real estate, um, direct ownership real estate. You know, start with a duplex, fourplex. Um, rather than paying rent, try to get it and then make yourself the landlord. And learn the ropes of the business, really dedicate yourself to it, and as soon as you can, get another one. And then maybe get a third one. Pro most people can live off of, you know, eight to 12 units. Wow. Um, and so that's that's something that's achievable for a 40-year-old, even on a modest income. Yeah, That's interesting. You know, how, how did you come up with the 18, 12 to 18 units? Well, let's let's just say, I don't know, let, let, let me throw it back at you guys. What is a uh, two-bedroom apartment rent for in your area? Uh, so our friend is paying eighteen hundred. Yeah, probably about fourteen to eighteen hundred dollars. All right, fourteen eighteen hundred, and he's single. Yes. Yes. Okay, so fourteen eighteen hundred. He's probably. I mean, he could probably live comfortably on eight units, right? Because just think about like the cost of that. You've got to subtract taxes, insurance, etc. So if he could acquire eight units, so maybe he finds loans from the down payments from family. Or maybe he do, he gets uh, deals under contract that are very favorable, and he finds investor money to get the down payment. You know, because again, his 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 problem is shortage of capital. Right. Right. right? So he's going to have to contribute a deal, and he's going to con have to contribute management and possibly even some maintenance skill. It depends on how well he wants to control costs. Right. Um, again, he can hire out that. Maybe what he does is he becomes really good at finding maintenance people. He can deliver good value at low costs. But anyway. You know, he's going to have to add value in some way, right? right? He can leverage the resources he doesn't have, but at eight units, if he's on the title, if he owns them and like the lender is just a note holder, right? By the time he's got those things paid off, let's say two of the units go to taxes, insurance, and maintenance. Um, that gives him six units to live on. Uh, for getting inflation adjusting, right? We're just keeping it in constant dollars. That's what, 9000 Right. Um, eight, nine thousand. That's plenty of money. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it, what I like, love about the example here and what you originally started with is the idea of having a plan and that you put together just a very brief, quick, simple plan in our book Four principles of a debt free life. The, the fourth principle is having a financial plan. Uh, anytime you want to make progress financially, from where you're at, you have to you have to have that plan in place, or else you're not going to really be able to use any sort of guardrails or um, uh, give yourself the stepping stones of where you go next. You know, we always you're going to come to you're going to get some money and you're going to want to spend it or use it, and you won't be using it according to the plan that you have. Exactly, couldn't agree more. And you know. Every dollar has to have a job. If a dollar doesn't have a job, guess what? It's unemployed. And what happens to unemployed dollars? They vanish. <laughs> I love that. That is smart. I love, that's the quote. Of, I think that's the quote of the show. Yeah, we'll have to uh, make a snippet of that. All right, well, ultimately, you, I, the whole phrase you can give me credit for the first. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely will. Of what, uh, you need a budget. Um, that's really his little phrase that they use over there. Yeah. So I borrowed it from that, but then I made it unemployable and all that. So I can get credit for that part. But it's, it's, <laughs> That's awesome. I think it's great. I think what I, what I liked about what you described there, the scenario that David gave you, is 
there, there are a lot of, uh, especially older men in our community uh, who maybe went through the 80s and 90s. Uh, or, or, they rocked or, it. Yeah. <laughs> and many of them, unfortunately, had, had predicted that they would be dead by now because they didn't think that there was going to be a solution for AIDS or HIV. And, um, you know, we've made a lot of progress. So now they, they, they rocked it. Um, they, they spent every dollar that they have. And now many of them are, are working in retail, as David said. So what I think it's great is that even if you're 40 or 50 and you, for whatever reason, haven't prepared, there, there is a solution to it. You just, just apparently not the traditional solution you're going to get from a traditional advisor. Yeah, because when you said 40, let's say, let's say they're you know, good at negotiating the deal and they can get a deal that they can, it can carry the note you know, carry the mortgage or whatever for 15 years. So 15 year full payoff, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So 15 years when the buildings are debt free, they've got inflation adjusting cash flow they can never outlive. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a it's a kind of a cool plan. It's it's pretty brain dead simple, you know. Yeah, it's it's inspiring, and I'm and I'm assuming that your courses can help somebody f figure this out from start to finish. If somebody's working in a bar right now, and they're talking about you're talking about cash flow from a real estate investment, that's probably a pretty daunting scenario. Yeah, yeah, the course takes it soup to nuts. It starts with the most basic of basics and builds it brick by brick by brick. Like I've actually been surprised because, as, as people can tell from talking with it, there's a fair amount of jargon and a fair amount of complication. There's lots of asset classes and everything. I mean, like people are having no questions and it's changing lives. Like it's that clear. That's nice. what we like to hear. So basically it sounds like you got to figure out, you know, where you are, where you, where you want to go, figure out your plan. And then you kind of reverse engineer it using the asset classes that are available to you or that you're good at leveraging. Um, yeah. To close, that close. Goal. The asset classes as well as the various strategies within the asset classes. Right. Right. And there, there's a bit more to it than that, but I don't want to sure. overcomplicate it. I mean, you guys are hitting the nutshell, which is, yeah, you, I mean, exactly as you said, where you are now, where you want to be by when, and then how do you close that gap? Right. That's what we call gap analysis. And then you reverse engineer the gap and that's your plan. Yeah. And then the plan sets the context for every decision you will make between now and then. And you're not bound by it. You can always change your plan. It's your plan, right? It's not like it's a jail. As a matter of fact, this plan sets you free. Right. Because the plan allows you to to to, you know, like what I always get is I get these complicated questions around, hey, Todd, should I get this investment or that? Well, what's your plan? Right. Like well, you have to have context for all these decisions. That's what the plan provides. It sets you free. Right. Yeah. I love that you that we're, we're very in sync with what, with what we share with our audience. Um, you know, we always talk about the need for a budget and. Um, a lot of people look at a, at a budget as restrictive, but for us, it's not. It, it kind of, we know we have a great life, and the only reason we have a great life is because our budget tells us when we can afford certain things or what how, how soon it is going to be until we can achieve a, a certain goal. Um, a budget kind of gives you that structure that you need. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I teach budgeting slightly differently. Mm -hmm. um, I teach a thing I, I call the no budget budget. Um, cause I feel like budgets are like diets, right? They, they don't work. And, and the reason budgets are problematic and I'm not trying to negate what you said, right? Cause sure. I'm agreeing in principle. I just have a slightly different implementation. Um, and so the reason budgets are very problematic is because it's trying to get somebody to do what they don't want to do. Right. And so that's why like, you know, when people come off a budget, they binge eat ice cream and all, I mean, you know, on a diet, I mean, they right. binge eat ice cream and they do all kinds of stuff or people come off budgets and they binge spend. John, right? John binge eats, binge eats ice cream after a budget too. So <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I want to diet right now. I'm getting skinny. <laughs> so anyway, um, it, the problem is it's asking you to do something you don't want to do. Right? right. And so the way I teach budgeting is I have people ask themselves two questions. So first of all, you track every expense because the way I teach it is it's a, it's a consciousness or awareness exercise around aligning your spending with your highest and most important values, okay? And so what you do is first of all, you have to raise your awareness around your spending. Most people have no idea where they're wasting their money and how much money they're wasting. And so if you just track it, you will naturally and intelligently move towards better spending patterns. Mm -hmm. And so you start, the process begins with tracking every penny, literally every penny, no exceptions that comes into or out of your life, mm -hmm. right? So all the income gets tracked that's coming in, every spending penny that goes out. If you put a dime in a parking meter, you track it, 
right? If you flip a $2 tips for a baggage handler, you track it, right? No, no amount is too small. Right. And so you track all this spending very carefully. And then every, I don't know, week, particularly in the beginning, maybe two weeks later on, um, you post it to a spreadsheet. And then if you have a partner, you sit down and you sit there and say, okay, this item here, look at, look at this line I'm here. Is this taking us toward our goals or away from our goals? First question. Second question, is this getting us the highest and best value for our money? So I'll repeat them again. Is this taking us toward our goals or away from our goals? Is this getting us our highest and best value for our money? Now notice that nowhere in there was there a question about could I live without it? Right. Do I really need to spend it? None of that scarcity thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Those two questions are completely forward-moving questions. They take you toward what you want. That's why it works. It's taking you in a positive direction towards what you want. And you will naturally, as you observe this stuff and you get creative, you'll start seeing ways to get better value for your money. That's a hallmark of people who build wealth, is they're very good at getting value for their money. Notice I didn't say cheap. I said they're getting great value for the money because sometimes the cheapest option is not the best value. Right. Right. So, but sometimes free is the best value. So let's do an example. I sell courses, right? Um, Now, none of my stuff's available anywhere but from my site unless somebody's pirating it. Um, And so there's really no alternative to buying it. But let's say that there's some big name guru out there that's selling courses. And he has his DVD program where he recorded himself up on the, the podium and he sells his DVD program. So you could say, well, I could spend $3,000 to buy his course and then I could go spend another thousand bucks in plane fare and hotel reservations and food out and go see him live and experience this event, right? The event junkie, <laughs> right? Right? Or, yeah. or maybe... And what I'm trying to do is get the highest and best value for money. Remember that question, is this the highest and best value of my money? I'm giving a, a demonstration of it. So then you could look at it and you could say, well, I could buy his DVD set for $500 and I'll get the same value for the money. Now, I won't get the live event experience. I won't get the camaraderie of being there. But if my goal is to learn how to buy real estate, which is what this course teaches, this will give me the value for the money, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and so bam, five hundred bucks. That's a lot better deal than four thousand dollars. Right, three thousand plus a thousand expenses. Right, right. And then you could say, well, let's get more creative. Still, I wonder if that course is available used on eBay. Right, and so then you, lo and behold, you find it. It's one hundred and fifty bucks on eBay, used in perfect condition. And so you could buy it for one hundred and fifty bucks. Now you're down from four thousand to one hundred and fifty to get the value with just a little bit of creativity. You're not suffering in any way. Notice how we're not hampering lifestyle in any way. We're just being creative and smart. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you look at it, you go, well, wait a minute. This guy's not unique. Nothing this guy has to say is unique. I'll bet you I could get this for, you know, 100 bucks worth of books on Amazon. Right? Now you're down to 100 bucks. And then you go, wait a minute. Why am I buying books on Amazon? Let me go down to the library. I'll get it for free. Yeah. <laughs> Right. A good old library. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting that you bring this up because John and I, our, our basic idea and philosophy behind a budget as well is that the first question you ask is why? Why is it that you want to make a change? Why do you, what is it that you really want in life? What is your, what is the goal? What is the importance in, in what you want to do? And that will frame the decisions that you make about where you want to spend your money. And then the second step is doing a spending analysis. And that spending analysis was the step that we took that helped us go, holy crap, we're spending money on things we don't really enjoy. We're doing yeah. this, we're doing this just out of obligation or out of the, the, uh, the feeling of we're leading a good life, but that's not what we really want. And we boiled it down to the things that we really wanted. And that's where we started to spend our money. And I think yes, it's very congruent with what I said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. When you talk, it's, uh, a lot of the words you use reminds me of Dr. Martini. Do you listen to his, his work? I don't even know who he is. Oh, you don't? Yeah, because you talk a lot about um, understanding what your higher values are. And that's exa- exactly what his entire platform is, bu- is built on, is helping people figure out what their highest values are and getting their lives congruent with what those are and not what society or what they were brought up to believe they should, how they should live. Oh, absolutely. I fully agree with that. And I mean, that, that's just a, um, you know, sinkhole. 
you know, when you start worrying about what other people think, it's a sinkhole. You've got to focus. You've got to become internally directed so you can align yourself with your own values. Um, Just to clarify one point, we have to be careful what questions we ask. And so you had said why. Nothing wrong with the why question because you clarified it afterward. But you have to be very careful of why questions. This is a coach in me, right? Because, you know, I've been coaching for 17 years. Um, And so why questions are a spiral. You know, like, why did I do this? Why do I want this? Why, 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 why? And it's kind of a a self-spiral. What questions and how questions are what your audience really wants to focus on. So try to reframe things in terms of what questions and how questions. Yeah. You know, so what do I really want? Right. How will I get what I want? You know, things like that. Why questions are sort of self-inflicting and they take you downward inward. Yeah, we definitely don't want to do that. We have a lot of people who are already down there. Yeah, <laughs> We're trying to lift exactly. them up. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. You and I had a, a pretty extensive conversation um, via email and direct message before, before the recording here today. Um, and one of my favorite quotes you, you said was, However, anytime we seek to honor an internal experience through an external thing, the end result is shallow and disappointing. And I think that's something that our community identifies a lot with. Do you mind explaining that, your perception? Yeah, first of all, tell me, why do you think the community identifies with it? Um, A lot of us, I think, suffer from limiting beliefs, and I think that stems from being bullied, picked on, not being able to be yourself when you're younger. Um, And I think that uh, it kind of just hardwires us as we're younger and then that very often when we're older and we're finally financially independent and on our own I think um, that manifests itself in us spending um, for superficial reasons having the right car the right vacations uh, pretty much what David and I were doing um, living living the life that we thought we were supposed to live so that we could be a part of um, an accepting community um, when in fact we didn't actually have to do that we were just burdening ourselves bingo I just want to make sure I had the right answer here (laughs) Um, so what it what it is is the human mind works by projection right and so we project our crap out on other people right so when you're being judged really what people are doing is they're they're identifying with uh parts of themselves they haven't accepted right right and so like making this more real in terms of financial freedom the the internal goal you're really trying to honor is freedom right like I have a high value on freedom. That's why I aspired to achieve financial freedom at such a young age is because I really valued freedom. I didn't know this consciously at the time. I was just projecting like everybody else does, right? Mm-hmm. I was making all the mistakes like everybody else does because, you know, I'm just like everybody else. And so I I projected my high value for freedom onto the external thing called money, Right. And then it became financial freedom. So financial freedom became this uh, goal when my real internal goal was personal freedom. Mm-hmm. Right. What I really wanted was personal freedom. But I but I acted it out through money and achieving financial freedom. And part of that, again, is is, you know, similar kind of uh, storyline, which is uh, low self-worth. You know, I had low self-worth. Um, I, I'm, I'm ADD. Um, extremely intense mind. Um, you know, I've learned to manage it, but as a kid, it was very difficult. Um, so I had my own versions of, you know, repression and beating up that resulted in low self-worth, right? And so as I became an adult, I tried to act out on that by achieving a very high net worth and achieving success in society's eyes, mm-hmm. right. right? I'm sure you can relate, right? The overspend. Now, I never went to the overspending side. For me, my manifestation of it was I just want a huge fat net worth, you know, like I just want to be a big fat cat kind of thing. <laughs> right. um, but I didn't I never wanted the Corvette. I never wanted any of the flash. I, I, you know, I like reading books. I like playing sports. Um, I've got a very kind of low end lifestyle that way. Um, I've never been a big consumer. I've never projected my desires onto stuff, but I did project on a money per se. And so when I did achieve financial freedom, um, we sold the hedge fund and I achieved financial freedom. It was both the highest point and then it was the beginning of the downhill slide that took me into understanding a lot of the stuff. Um, you know, so it was a high point in achieving freedom, but then I spiraled down because I suddenly, you know, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm rich and I'm the same miserable cuss I always was, (laughs) 
you know, and I'm, I'm looking at it going, well, wait a minute, I'm free now. This is everything I worked toward. I did it. You know, I'm a smart cookie, you know, like saying all this stuff in the mirror, like what the hell's wrong with me, you know? And that began a deeper understanding of what I was really after, you know, a long path of personal growth that is what's allowed me to understand these things. Um, so I don't, did that answer the question? Yeah, it, it did. did. Definitely I, I loved hearing that story. That's, I think it's something that, um, although it's not exactly the same, um, I think it's something that our audience can identify with. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There doesn't have to be the separation from gay or not. I mean, we, we've all had repression in our own ways, you know, like yours is unique to you and mine was unique to me. Um, but it's still repression. It still has the same impact psychologically. So, I also, I'm sorry, John, go I'm going to interrupt. I, I also like the fact that you identified that your means of trying to satiate that feeling inside was going after this massive wealth. And even though once you achieved that, you still didn't have that feeling of satisfaction and, no. and, uh, and uh, self-actualization. And I think that more and more people in our community are starting to realize that with the acquisition of things, the, the showy display of one's means of life, the, the having the nice car, the nice house, the, the nicest clothes, those things are not truly going to satisfy you. You may feel like it for a little bit because that's what people see you in, but it's not going it, to, it doesn't satisfy you. Um, like you said, there, there's... Yeah, it's ephemeral. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's, it's temporary. I mean, you, you buy a goodie and you feel good about yourself and you, you know, prance it around and show it to everybody. And then suddenly you're the same miserable cuss. Right. And <laughs> right. The, then you have to go get the next goodie and aspire to the next thing. And, and it's just this never ending spiral. And then, you know, you've got debt and you've, you know, deep inside, you know, the truth, you know, the truth that it's not working for you. Right. And so you just have to set the priorities straight. How, how did you do that when you, you know, realized that you'd achieved all your goals, but you, it, you weren't necessarily any happier? How did you sort of peel back that onion and, and figure that out? Well, can I reframe the question? I have no problem with the question, but I don't think most people are going to be able to relate to it because here I am financially independent and I go through a personal growth journey. It's not going to be real relatable. Sure. I think, I think it would be more relatable to say, you know, how does somebody who's, you know, dealing with overspending with acting out through things – how do they, you know, how do they write the ship? Would that be fair enough to turn around that yeah, way? So yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it's the same thing. It's just flipped upside down so it's more relatable. Um, and <laughs> sorry, now the answer is going to suck. It, it, <laughs> right? Because you know, the answer is it's hard, right? Because what you have to do is you have to start making the right decisions. Kind of what you guys did. You have to look at it honestly and go, what does really make me happy? You know, and and just start it brick by brick by brick, you know, just start tearing down the facade and start coming from inside about what is truly important to you, you know, and standing for what you hold true and and not acting out through money and through appearances mm -hmm. and then, you know, right siding your 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 spending accordingly, like we talked about with the no budget budget, where you take all that spending, you look at it and you go. Is this, is this taking me toward my goals or away from my goals? You guys did the same thing and you said, shoot, why are we spending all this money? This is not taking us to where we want. This right. is not what we want in life. You know, this is not what we value. And so you get that internal direction going, right? You're no longer acting out according to society's crap. Instead, you're kind of coming back at it and going, what do I care about? What's important to me? How do I get my money to reflect my values? How do I get my spending to give me the highest and best value for my money for where I want to go. And if that means sharing a room somewhere or living on the wrong side of town to keep your rent down, you know, or moving back in with the parents because they're old and it just works for you financially right now and everybody's going to insult you, well, oh well. Right. Right. Right? You got to do what works for you. If, if you don't show up in the sharpest clothes and the coolest car, I mean, all right, so I'll, I'll throw something out. My kids went to private school. Uh, it was the best education in town. So, you know, that's an example of my values. I throw money at that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we would show up, and I swear, we had the worst cars <laughs> of, of any of the families in the school. And I am not kidding you, right? I mean, they were literally the worst cars. And it became kind of a joke. But my kids, I don't feel, carry a repressive thing around it or any embarrassment 
because we're also one of the only families that would take off for like two months in the summer and go on these fabulous family vacation adventures. Like, like we spend our money in a different way. The other thing too that the kids observed is a lot of the parents had to pull their kids from school because they couldn't carry the tuition. They're showing up in late model Escalades and new Mercedes and they can't pay their kids tuition. And so they put their kids in public school. Meanwhile, my kids show up in a junky old minivan or a Honda, (laughs) you know, and they, and which I could, I could buy the other cars. I just think it's a stupid waste of money. Right. Right. And so I, I buy reliable quality cars. They're not junk. They're just quality cars that are reliable. They're not flashy. And their transportation, to me, it's transportation, you know, mm-hmm. and and they show up in that stuff, but their bills are paid. The, their tuition bills were always paid. There was never any issue with that. Their college is covered. They know that. And we take we focus on experiences, not stuff. Education's an experience. The trips we take as a family, they're all adventure experiences and we don't flash. I think that the, the the thing I love about this story that you just told is that the the focus and the importance was that you were giving your kids a good education. They were yeah. getting the same education that the other kids were getting. So why does it how does it, you know why does it matter how they got there? <laughs> they were there to get an education. Yeah, yeah, you know, but it's also that's part of teaching your kids. It's part of learning, you exactly. know, and and getting clear on that because. Yeah, we stood out, you know. But you have to figure out what's what's important to you, and that's pretty much that's exactly what David and I did. And we narrowed it down to three things that we ultimately wanted. But it took us several months to figure out that we didn't actually get that much satisfaction from five hundred dollar pair of jeans, or going out to the clubs every weekend, or putting a vacation on credit because we were always stressed and disappointed when we came back. Um, that, and we had to come up with newer versions of ourselves and be okay with the fact that. We might lose some friends or not stay as, as close to some friends as we had been before, but we have different values. Um, but it's, it's all worked out, and now we're much happier living our values and not living what um, our community or what society says. Right. Yay. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I mean, I would just sit here and applaud and hug you. you know, that's exactly <laughs> the game. That's awesome. So I think this has been a, a great conversation, yes, and not, I know I definitely want to learn more. Where can our, um, you mentioned your website, um, where and how can our audience find more about you and find more about um, your courses? Yeah, so the website is financialmentor.com. So, you know, two words mashed up to one, financialmentor.com. There's a bunch of free giveaways there. So, I mean, I've got tons of tons of free educational content. So if you're in debt, don't buy anything from me, right? Just use the free educational content. Um, there's like over a thousand printed pages. So there's plenty to learn without paying anything. Um, if you subscribe, there's two free bonuses. I give away a free ebook, 18 essential lessons of a self-made millionaire. Um, there's also a free e-course, uh, called 52 weeks to financial freedom. And no, you won't get rich in 52 weeks. We're not about get rich quick here. Uh, but you will get the framework that governs the path to financial freedom. You will understand the framework in that period of time. Um, and then you can plot where you are in the framework and figure out what course is right for you, which takes you to the paid courses, right? So that's all the free stuff for you. Um, the paid courses are seven steps to seven figures. It's seven individual courses. It was all pretty much developed by my clients while I was coaching them. They showed me what those seven steps are. This is real. This is not fabricated for me. Um, and so I've mapped out the financial freedom process into seven unique steps. The only one that's publicly available now is one we touched on in this discussion, which is step three, um, how to design your life to result in wealth. Um, and so it's about building a wealth plan that will actually work for you, your life, your resources, your skills, what you're bringing to the equation, how much time you have, how much money you need. You know, all the things we talked about here, that's what that course covers um, that's publicly available. So that's the only ones available. The other ones I still have to build out. Awesome. Well, thank you. That's great. And I appreciate you saying that you, if our audi- audience members who are in debt are interested in learning more, that they don't have to buy a course, that there's a lot of resources for them, too. And um, I think it's great. So thank you very much for that. And thank yeah. you for your time today. It's been great having you. Definitely. Thank- hey, thanks for having me on the shows, guys. It was great talking with you. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for sticking around. Sh- Todd sure did make us think a lot. We hope he did the same for you. So now are you ready to get that plan in order for your better retirement? The first key is to become money conscious. So join us every week with Queer Money by subscribing on iTunes 
And then pick up our free ebook, 12 Steps to a Richer You, that we'll link to in the show notes of this page, as well as get on over to Todd's site, financialmentor.com, and check out all of the free resources that Todd has. So have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) Would help me if I had a personal chef made all all my healthy meals for me. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The other end, I like the butts, so. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.